G'day Spuddies, welcome to the SpudFit Podcast. Today's guest is Jeff Ahern. Jeff is a senior mental health clinician from Melbourne, Victoria, and he's got extensive experience in emergency and trauma nursing, rural nursing, alcohol and other drug counselling, and he holds a master's degree in crisis mental health intervention and is, uh, and is working on his PhD regarding suicide risk and LGBT people. Uh, Jeff has a pretty incredible story, which we'll get to, but first I just want you to know that I'm doing some coaching these days. Uh, if you're interested in working on your own food addiction issues, then get in contact with me and we'll, we'll sort out a free 15-minute uh, conversation where you and me can, uh, can discuss whatever is going on in your life and see if maybe we'll be uh, a good fit to work together. Spudfit.com or, or just email me, andrew at spudfit.com and we can sort that out. Uh, this could be a life-changing thing. I hope it is a life-changing thing for you and, uh, and if I can help, then let's have, a, let's have a chat and see if we can do something about uh, the way your life is going with regards to food addiction and, uh, and your relationship with food. Now, this conversation took a pretty dramatic turn. Within the first minute, it went in a totally different direction than I imagined this conversation going. Uh, it was extremely powerful, especially in the current climate of the world today. Uh, I don't want to spoil the conversation, so I'll, I'll uh, just... I won't say any more than that, but uh, other than to say that if this triggers something for you, then I hope you get the take steps to at least get the help you need and contact some people that can support you. Uh, Lifeline uh, is, a, is a good place to start. That's a place where I personally started with dealing with my own uh, depression issues, uh, but also visit your GP or, uh, or at least talk to someone you love and uh, who loves you and and try to get the help that you need. Um, again, this is a super powerful conversation, something that I didn't expect uh, to happen. Well, I expected it to be a good conversation, but I didn't expect it to take the direction that it did, and, and I hope I did it justice. Uh, I hope that my, uh, my line of questioning and my participation in this, in this conversation was, uh, was worthy of what we were talking about. It was very, very powerful and I'm so, uh, I'm, I'm really proud of it and I'm happy that this happened after a year of trying to plan this, this chat with Jeff. Um, he's an amazing, incredible guy. Uh, I won't bore you anymore with an introduction. Let's just get to it, folks. Please enjoy and uh, here we go. All right, here we are, Jeff Ahern. Welcome to the SpudFit podcast. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Talking um, to yeah, it's been a long time coming. We planned this for, uh, I don't know, a year, maybe? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, but you know, life gets in the way for me mostly, you know, having a new baby, trying to do anything while, while you've got a new baby is. Uh, Maybe a bit ambitious, but... <laughs> Been there, done that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, we're here. We're here and it's good. Um, all right. So anyone who listens to my podcast knows that I've got a standard first question and uh, it's interesting to, to hear answers. And that question is, who is Jeff Ahern? And because I listen to your podcast, I think that was your first question. <laughs> Jeff Ahern, uh, I think I'm just an average guy, really. Um, 
I'm a dad to five kids. Five kids, right. I knew you had kids. I didn't realize five. That's five. Two, two for me, and that is enough. Like, that is hard <laughs> enough. So, five kids, you must be some kind of superhuman, like... <laughs> Yeah, no, you're, you're on a different a, plane to me. I think there's a fine line be- between being superhuman or courageous and being stupid, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. So you're dad to five kids. Um, I'm a mental health clinician and educator and advocate, which is, makes up the bulk of what I do. Um, I'm a professional house sitter which we've been chatting about yeah, before we started. Yeah, that is interesting. That's something I didn't know about you, but yeah, we've yeah. got a shared history there. <laughs> yeah. I'd, I'd call myself a minimalist because everything I own fits into my little car out the front. Yeah. And um, another part, <coughs> important part of my story, I think, is that I'm a survivor of child sexual assault. As a, as a kid, I was um, in the wrong place at the wrong time on four different occasions, unfortunately, four different oh, right. perpetrators. And, um, four different, mm, Jesus. Yeah, I think I had a sign on my back or something. And um, in, in terms of having five kids, um, I, one of them actually passed away when I was in my mid-twenties. So, and that was, um, it's something called traumatic grief in terms of it was a pretty shocking uh, experience that happened. So I, I think that's an important part of my story, actually yeah. using that word survivor when you've been through that kind of stuff. Yeah. And I like to, I, it's fairly recent for me to talk about it, but publicly, but I like yeah. to talk about it because I think we need to get men talking about their mental health and their experiences, like things like trauma, which uh, mostly men don't want to talk about. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, even like a big part of my own story is based on the way my mental health changed. Mm. And, um, mm. and I was uh, nobody other than my wife really knew that I was suffering with depression until it basically was on the news and everybody knew mm. <laughs> when, I, when I did this <laughs> potato challenge. So yeah. Yeah, I was typical, you know, tough guy, Aussie bloke, uh, you know, nothing can hurt me and, uh, well, not nothing can hurt me, but I shouldn't let anyone know that things mm. can hurt me and uh, so I kept that all to myself and, um, and yeah, definitely the, that process of starting to just force myself to talk about it was uh, very, um, very healing for me. So, mm, yeah. yeah, I think it's important and I'm, I'm glad that we're talking about that. Uh, today for sure um yeah. you surprised me with the the uh, mention of your sexual assault mm. surviving um that was something i didn't know about you until right now so uh yeah i, I was probably would have waited to get into the that stuff but but um yeah that's i feel like we should just talk about that straight away like because sure. especially in the climate at the moment um with you know Cardinal George Pell mm, just mm. having just been convicted, it's sort of a, a hot topic. That was only a few days ago that that happened, and um, that has—I've never experienced anything like that. I wouldn't even pretend to know what uh, that is like. I've worked with lots of kids that have experienced that, mm. but um, but yeah, just just seeing that in the news has kept me awake at night. Just thinking about how horrible that is for not just the guy that George Pell assaulted, but, um, or abused is a better word, I think. Uh, but just anyone like the kids I've worked with and all of that. And, uh, I guess I'm, I'm guessing that that's maybe brought up some trauma for you over the last few days, or I don't know, how's that been for you? Yeah, I think I'm not alone. I, I, like this week has been really hard because yeah. it's been 
I don't watch commercial television. I don't listen to commercial radio. And yeah. when I'm in the car, I just listen to podcasts. Yeah, devour them. And uh, but jump on social media, and it's, mm. it's all over social media. And you know, and uh, so yeah, I've had a bit of a rough week in terms of it's just hard hearing that stuff, particularly hearing the people that are coming out and defending him and mm. saying he's still a good man in spite of being uh, convicted. And uh, I, uh, my understanding is there's going to be an appeal as well. Mm. But I know from even working in mental health, I've actually assessed people this week who have unraveled pretty quickly and, and ended up really distressed, some of them even thinking of suicide, as a result of all the media attention and kind of... Because mm. I think, you, you know, you spend a lot of your time when you've been through this kind of stuff trying to, uh, if you can, not not think too much about it. Um, mm. When you're going through treatment in terms of, you know, talking to somebody and getting help, that can be really, really rough, but that's an, an important part of recovery as well. But um, I've had people reach out to me via social media as well because, as I said, it's fairly new for me to talk about it publicly and uh, in doing so, I think you, you, you give people permission to actually talk about it as well. So I've mm. had people reaching out and saying that they're doing it tough as well. And I, only po- I think I was up at 4 a.m. yesterday morning and posted something on um, my mental health Facebook page, just yeah. actually telling people, look, if you're doing it tough, look after yourself and um, and reach out for some support. Don't try to, to do it alone. So, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, yeah, like I said, my, I've, not, I've not got any experience with that at all other than having worked with lots of kids and, and I've, I've seen how uh, those experiences just profoundly impact a life of a young person mm. uh, that's gone through that and just, yeah, I, I, for the background, I guess lots of people don't know, I, I spent a big part of my teaching career working in schools for kids that have, uh, basically it's their last chance in the education system, they've, for whatever reason, mainstream school hasn't worked for them, for some of them it's behavioural troubles that they just, they've been kicked out of every school they've been to, for some of them it's been, uh a situation where they have just, you know, anxiety has meant that they just can't bring themselves to turn up at mainstream school and uh, mm. everything in between. And, uh, and yeah, it's amazing just a really, really high percentage of those kids that ended up in the schools that I've worked in have had that sort of sexual abuse in their history. Mm. And if not sexual abuse, then always some kind of uh, physical abuse or verbal abuse there's always abuse in the background in close enough to 100% of the cases yeah. but but um, a high percentage of, of them are sexual and um, and yeah so like I said indirect experience for me but it's been a hard week for me as well so I can't imagine that you know if you've experienced it directly then uh, yeah it's, mm-hmm. a, it's a whole new level so that, those yeah. kids you're talking about as well um, <clears throat> So when I moved to Melbourne six and a half years ago to work with Victorian Police, so we have a, a team here called Mental Health and Police Response where we put mental mm-hmm. health clinicians in police stations and we respond right. to mental health emergencies, so triple zero calls involving mental health, actually getting okay. out on the road with the police. And we often saw those kids as well um, in um, foster homes and group homes and DHS homes. And, and mm. uh, you're right, it's, re- it's remarkable the amount of abuse that they've experienced. But one of the problems is, is we're not very good at dealing with it. So we'll take a kid who's angry and lashing out and, and diagnose them with something like oppositional defiance disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, there may be an element of, of that to this kid, but um, most of these kid, kids have 
untreated trauma and so they're lashing out because they're angry yeah. and they're scared you know the, the, the world is a scary place for them and so mm. unfortunately when when they lash out people don't like them either so mm. um healthcare staff and often police as well um because they're not not often the nicest kids to deal with, yeah. as you would know. And, yeah. uh, and, uh, but trying to understand that or, or having an understanding of childhood trauma changes the way you react to them. It doesn't excuse their behaviour if they're lashing out, but mm. it helps you understand why they're actually lashing out. And there's actually, um, I think it was the <clears throat> early 2000s maybe, there's a thing called the Adverse Childhood Experiences study. I don't know if you've heard of no, that. No, I haven't history. heard that, no. So they looked at... Um, so there was a big um, company called Kaiser Permanente that was doing research with people who were overweight. Yep. And they had about 50% of people, I think from memory, um, were dropping out even if they were losing weight and then they were putting all the weight back on. And so they decided to interview the people that were dropping out and they discovered that a really significant percentage of them had childhood trauma. So then they started conducting research uh, into these participants and they they had 10 different types of childhood trauma and the more trauma you experienced, the more educational outcomes were poorer, um, general phys physical health uh, outcomes were poor, uh, poorer, mental health outcomes were, uh, were poorer. So if you had um, six or more types of trauma as a kid, your, your, your chance of attempting to end your life by suicide increased by 3,000%. Wow, it's just remarkable. So when, when, with every single mental health assessment that I do, um, one question that I always ask the person when they're in crisis is I ask them about history of trauma. And we, we have a pro forma that we fill out, so we, we kind of, you know, you're prompted to follow this, this, this outline, but in the pro forma that we have for doing our assessments, it doesn't actually include asking about trauma. But um, in our guidelines for treating people with addiction, for example, um, we know that a lot of people are self-medicating because of childhood trauma. So our guidelines mm. for treating addiction say you must explore trauma with the person. And yeah. um, the stats tell us that if you have a serious mental health problem and an addiction problem, there's at least an 80% chance that you experience childhood trauma. So like these numbers are really, really significant and, and we continue not to, not to address it uh, mm. really well, which is, again, a part of the reason why I thought it was really only maybe a couple of months ago that I decided... Yeah. I need to actually be a bit of a voice here and let people yeah. know that, that uh, you can survive and there's hope for recovery and get people thinking about talking about it. Yeah. But, and like I said, particularly men because um, so many men don't want to talk about their trauma. Yeah, definitely. And that makes me glad that it took a long time to for us to actually get together and do this because mm. maybe if we did it a year ago, we wouldn't have been having this important conversation. Have not yeah. have mentioned it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... Um, yeah, for me, yeah, it's really interesting what you talk about with uh, trauma being behind, or often, not, I guess not always, but often behind addiction and behind poor health outcomes because, yeah, I said I didn't experience um, any sort of abuse from, uh, you know, parents or authority figures or anything like that. But for me, I think it goes back to uh, bullying, like mm. throughout, basically throughout my entire school life, I was bullied quite a lot all verbal really because you know I was always the biggest or if not the biggest then close to it in the class and I was an athlete and I could really handle myself so I never or very extremely rarely got physical with the bullying but um mm. yeah the the verbal bullying that I experienced was not fun at all and for most of my life 
as a student in school I didn't want to go to school I didn't like school mm. and it was because of that and uh, and yeah it makes sense to me that uh, that that manifested itself in uh, in you know a disordered eating whether you want to call it addiction or not I call it addiction but yeah people argue about whether addiction is even a real thing as far as food goes which doesn't make sense to me, but anyway. Well, the, 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 the research yeah. says absolutely that, yeah. that, that that you can can be addicted to food. And I, okay, I, yeah. I love the way you talk about addiction for you with food that, you know, you, I think in one of your early podcasts I heard you talking about if you're addicted to a substance, you can stop using the substance, but you, if you're addicted to food, you can't stop eating or you yeah, can yeah. die. <laughs> but that, that idea of making, and what, what is it you said you make your... Food simple and your life interesting. Yeah, make your food boring and your life like, interesting. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think that's that. That I think when I, I I knew you understood addiction when I heard you talking about addiction, and most people don't understand addiction, unfortunately. So. Yeah. Well, for me, it's you know when I talk about when I'm what I mean when I say some people dispute that food addiction is a real thing. Um, that's the the conversation generally seems to be focused on the physiology of addiction. So. Um, you know, with with a cigarette, you know, a nicotine addiction, then you have that physiological dependence on, you know, creates this reaction in your brain, and then, um, and then, yeah. So there's this: if you don't get that reaction from the cigarettes or the alcohol or the heroin or whatever, then you experience withdrawals and that sort of thing, like physical withdrawals. Whereas people argue that maybe that doesn't happen so much with food. But to me, it's it's all, at least with food, it's a behavioural. Thing. Hmm. So, uh, compare it to cigarette smoking or alcohol or whatever. There are people that uh, take smoking as a good example. Everyone who smokes knows that they it's bad for their health and knows that they probably shouldn't. Most people who smoke probably want to quit, yeah. but not everyone not everyone does or hmm. not everyone can. And and they try multiple times and then they go back to it and all that. Um, and you can compare it to eating a donut, for example. You walk down any main street, any cafe strip, and you'll see someone eating a donut or a cake or whatever, and they'll be already quite overweight. And you know, there's nothing wrong with being overweight. If people are happy with being overweight, that's fine. But you will see people eating cake and donuts, and a lot of those people would rather not be overweight. Mm. And they know that the cake and the donut is a bad idea, but they keep eating it. So yeah. if if it's not an addiction issue, then what is it? Why do people keep making those bad choices that they know are bad choices and they know that these choices are taking them further away from where they want to be, but they keep making those choices anyway? The mm. only thing that makes sense to me is that it's an addiction issue in the same way that an alcoholic knows that they shouldn't be drinking. They keep on doing it anyway. A cigarette smoker knows that they shouldn't be and they keep doing it. You know, if it, if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, then it's a duck. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I, I, I think, too, it's the type of food that we're eating that actually does cause a reaction in your brain. So high fat, high, yeah. high salt, high sugar foods that we're eating activate a thing called the, the pleasure pathway or the mesolimbic pathway in the brain. So you do actually get this physiological um, um, reaction in the brain, and we are wired to seek uh, high calorie foods mm. uh, evolutionary psychologists will argue that we're wired to do this yeah. um, because it's about survival and that was great 
you know, um, a few hundred years ago when there wasn't a lot of food around, yeah. but now because of the plentiful food, um, it, it can actually be really difficult for a person to curb, curb, curb their eating because they are literally craving it. And um, the way I try to get people to understand it is to think about comfort eating. And most people at some point in their life will... <coughs> comfort eat so you have a really bad day you have a really bad week and you come home and you sit on the lounge and you eat a you know a one liter tub of chocolate ice cream and you're doing it because it's called comfort eating because it does actually make you feel really good yeah um, if you've got a life where there is uh, pain and unresolved trauma or loneliness and, and um, mental health problems then it, it's no different to actually using a, a drug it does actually make you feel good it's the same reason a, p- a person will use alcohol or use heroin or use cannabis because it actually makes you feel good and so our response is to be really judgmental around this rather than mm. trying to get to the to, to the bottom of it in terms of why the person actually needs to do this what, what what's the upside for them and you're right most people will say they want to quit smoking or they want to lose weight but it can be really tough if we don't get to the base of of what's going on for them that drives their behavior in the first place yeah and you remind me of um one of my favorite quotes about addiction from russell brand i don't know if you follow russell brand but i, think I listen to his podcast yeah, yeah. He's, he's uh he's a brilliant amazing guy a little bit crazy but we all are so that's good but yeah a famous well i don't know if it's famous but famous to me quote from him that was along the lines of um an alcoholic doesn't have an alcohol problem they have a reality problem and yes. the alcohol is the solution yes so yeah we need to rather than just focus on dealing with the alcohol we need to find a different solution to the problem that mm. doesn't involve alcohol and then you know once you can learn to uh process your emotions and find find comfort and enjoyment in life without turning to the alcohol or the food or whatever the problem is then you know, you've got a new solution that you can turn to, and you mm. don't you don't need the alcohol or the food as much as you, you previously did. So, mm. um, yeah, I'm interested uh, going back to you know the childhood trauma. Um, I'm interested in how maybe that affected you growing up, because like I said, I've worked with lots of kids that have um, experienced childhood trauma, whether all different kinds of abuse and it was obvious to me working with them mm-hmm. how how that had impacted their lives as far as you know the way they interact with me and the way they interact with the education system and adults in general and people in authority figures uh yeah it, it manifests in all different ways for all different kids uh, and yeah i'm interested in in how maybe that affected your life and mm-hmm. yeah kids that have been sexually assaulted tend to go one of two ways they tend to act out and become kind of hostile and angry and aggressive because they're they're scared and they don't want to be hurt again Mm. or they go the other way and they become the quiet kid that tries to please everyone and not upset anybody and that's what i did i became the people pleaser the the quiet Mm. timid kid who didn't want to upset anybody and you kind of that's almost i couldn't have articulated it at such a young age but looking back you want to fly under the radar you don't want anybody to don't don't want to draw any attention to yourself um so that somebody might then someone else might come and come and hurt you so that was that was what happened to me so i was unfortunately because if you're the quite timid kid that actually makes you more vulnerable to more sexual abuse Mm. because perpetrators they're not going to focus on the aggressive kid that's going to lash out they're going to focus on the quiet kid who they know they can ma- ma- manipulate them. And I think that's 
part of what made me a, a target for those four occasions was because of being that kid that didn't didn't want to actually rock the boat. And then by the time I got to my early teens, I was so um, um, upset with you know being targeted that I actually developed an eating disorder and stopped eating uh, or would eat really small amounts. Was never diagnosed and that hit it really well and never ever told anybody. But if you look at photos of me as a little kid, I was tiny, like really little, and grossly underweight. And my kind of little brain was saying that. If I make myself less attractive, maybe these men will leave me alone. And so I would deliberately starve myself. And you take lunch to school, but always just throw it, in, you know, throw it in, in, mm-hmm. in, in the rubbish and not tell anyone. And, and uh, um, nobody knows this. Like even my folks never never talked about the details. You know, when they found out that this had happened to me as a kid, I didn't even tell anyone. I was t- till I was, gosh, in my early thirties, and um, and. You know, they were quite, as parents often are, they were quite traumatised just with the knowledge that this had happened. Mm. So in, in, oh, I out can't of respect, imagine that, yeah. Mm, and so out of respect for them, we I don't talk to them, them about it because yeah. they're, they're, not, they're not bad parents. They're wonderful yeah. parents. Both yeah. my parents are still alive. But that's how it manifests in me as a kid was just to become the really quiet, timid, shy kid and try to fly under the radar. Yeah. Um, and the problem is too, when you're a quiet, shy, timid kid, you're also um, vulnerable to bullying. So a bit like you, I couldn't wait to get out of school because it, mm. was, it was absolutely shocking. And, you know, we were um, pretty poor, you know, barely above the poverty line for a lot of our childhood. So went to some pretty rough schools in lower socioeconomic areas too. Yeah. So um, um, that kind of just adds to the trauma then when you're, you're trying to fly under the radar and then you're being bullied because you're the quite timid kid yeah. which it just makes you another target yeah that's um, yeah it's, it's just I'm, I'm sort of a little bit speechless about this this whole experience but um, yeah there was two things interesting um, I've heard from lots of people that I've worked with personally coaching uh, on you know the food addiction side of things and I've well not I shouldn't say lots I've heard from a few people that have experienced um, sexual abuse as a, as a children and they've gone the other way though they've said like interesting that you said you, you wanted to make yourself less attractive um, so if you starved yourself you would be skinny and maybe these people wouldn't be attracted to you and it feels wrong to call them even people but um, yeah people have gone the other 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 way and gone, oh, I'm gonna eat everything and try yeah. to make themselves obese because that would make them less attractive and yeah. It's, yeah, it's interesting that um, yeah people can go either way with that and uh, and yeah it's um, yeah, I don't even know what to say about that it's just horrible the way that these people probably don't even contemplate how that how their actions can have such a a massive effect on uh, on a young kid's life, and not just as a kid, but just until forever. Um, the other thing that was interesting is that going back to this George Pell case, a lot of people have um, in the media and stuff, you know, ex prime ministers trying to say that he's a good guy and all that, and and people saying, well, it mustn't be true because if this happened, then the kid would have gone and told someone straight away. Why didn't he go and tell his parents mm. straight away that something had happened? And why didn't he say anything until he was in his early 30s? And you just said the same thing. You didn't tell anyone until you were in your 30s. So 
yeah, I'm interested in in your thoughts on that. It was just so relevant at the moment. That, mm-hmm. <clears throat> so yeah, I've I've got my own ideas, obviously, but having ex- having not experienced it myself, it's irrelevant what I think. And I'm interested in why do you think you yourself and and other people experience the same thing? Why do they hold on to it for decades before they let anyone know? I think my experience would be very similar to. Uh, a lot of kids and there are threats of violence you tell anybody and not you know i'll kill your family kind of thing so mm-hmm. with yeah. um the three out of the four cases that with me there were threats of violence and so you worry you, you believe this person when they say they're going to come and kill kill your mum and dad or kill your mm-hmm. sister you, you you're young and vulnerable and you believe that's a that. whole new level of trauma as well to have mm-hmm. that responsibility for your the lives of your family now on your shoulders yeah. that's yeah. Just, yeah. And yeah. the other thing is thinking, even if you did tell anybody, would they even believe me? And and I saw um, someone, a letter to the editor in some paper popped up in, in my Facebook feed only last night about um, uh, a guy who was had been sexually assaulted by a Catholic priest and when he went and told his parents, he, his dad cracked him across the face, knocked him to the ground and said, don't you ever speak about father so-and-so like that again. And he said... Oh, he, he, so he didn't. Geez. He said he never spoke of it again. It's just horrible to think. That, and and that's, I think that's part of the reason kids don't tell anybody because you think you're, you're the one that's going to get in trouble here. And you also believe that you, somehow you made it happen or you deserve it, you know, like, um, mm. which is very disordered thinking when you think about it. But at such a young age, you, you do. You blame yourself and you think, I did something. I why did I go into that change room or why did I do this? And, and so you see it. Why did I listen to him and follow him into the garage? You know, and so there's an element of self-blame in, in, involved as well. Yeah, well, you're a, you're a little kid and, you know, your teacher or your priest or your uncle or whoever it is, these are people in positions of power mm. that, that are, you know, as a little kid, you think adults know everything, don't you? Well, I did anyway. Mm. And um, so... Yeah, you trust them and you think if something goes wrong, well, it can't be their fault because they know everything. Mm. They're like, mm. you know. I, I, should say for the, I should say for the record too, because <laughs> I mentioned my parents before, yeah. it wasn't actually a family. None of the assaults were family members, yeah, yeah. so I, I'd hate for anyone yeah, to yeah. think <laughs> maybe it was his dad or something. No, yeah. wonderful, wonderful family. Yeah, um, yeah so, yeah, how did... How did that affect, you know, we know about your, your developing an eating disorder and it made you uh, into sort of a, a timid, meek kind of uh, child. Um, how do you think that affected you uh, as, as a part of your career and your rest of your life? Do you think that experience maybe led you into the field that you're in trying to Surpri- help other people, yeah. Surprisingly, no, it didn't lead me into okay. the field. Yeah. But, uh, so... One thing um, that's common with with childhood sexual assault is you develop a thing called toxic shame where you feel fundamentally foreign in your own body and and completely unworthy and undeserving of of any love or any care. And so you compensate for that by achieving. And so that's what I did. I I left school at the end of year 10 because I had to get it out, just get away from the bullying Mm. and then went to uni as a mature age student. Um, Once you turn 21, I was in Sydney at the time, you can go to uni back then as a mature age student and okay, it's all so about achievement you've, and you've got to be perfect you've got to be the best at whatever you do and I remember getting 
in a, uh, a neuro exam at uni and still being disappointed in myself. <laughs> you know, like that, yeah. and, and, so the, and it's still today, like I, I still struggle with perfectionism and yeah. wanting to be the best at whatever I do, not to beat anybody else, but just to prove to yourself that this is, I am actually worthy. In reality, nothing external makes you worthy. And so this is, I guess, part of the reason want to start talking about it yeah. too with people is, is to, to help other people start to un- unpack it because trauma's kind of been, become a bit of a specialty area for me in terms of particularly work, talking to other health professionals about how people react to trauma and um, in any setting, whether that be a mental health setting or they come in because they've been in a car accident and they've got a broken leg or whatever the setting might be, looking at how the, the, you know, the long-term impact um, of, of trauma on a person's um, psyche, I guess. Yeah, um, oh, there's, it's untold. I think how it how it can impact uh, someone. You know, just my obviously uh, my my experience with bullying still yeah it affects me to this day mm-hmm. and um, and it affected it had a big impact on who I became as a person and how I treat other people and um, and yeah I, I sort of through high school became um, sort of someone who ended up just getting in between bullies and victims quite often and um yeah because I could physically stop things I could physically get in the way of fights you know whenever there Mm. was at high school there was you know a crowd gathered around and there was a fight happening or something I would everyone was basically cheering for a fight to happen and Mm. I would always be the guy that went into the middle and stopped it because I was I didn't want to see people getting hurt and um and that you know the physical side of things was something i was quite capable of stopping because i was bigger and stronger than everyone else and i was an athlete you know i was probably the only kid at high school or at least close to it that was you know in the weights room every day Mm. (laughs) you know i was i was capable of doing that so it felt like something i could control and something i could do and you know a way that i could help stopping people getting hurt and and um probably I think a, a, a big reason why I went into teaching was that I could, you know, try to try to help in that way as well. And then I went into obviously the, the schools that I've talked about where I could try to help those situations where, you know, people have been basically bullied out of school into these, uh, you know, they've left school because the bullying has um, made, made them anxious enough that they didn't want to turn up anymore so I could mm. help. Yeah, so that was... Uh, yeah, it definitely affected a huge part of my life, and um, and I think it probably in lots of ways it affected it in a positive way as well because I was able to use you know my experiences to try to help others. So mm. um, yeah, it's easy to talk about all the negatives, and we have talked about a lot of the negatives. Do you think there are positives that have come from that experience as well? I think it's you know every cloud has a silver lining. Mm. So do you think there are positives that can come from that? <laughs> you read my mind. <laughs> Because <laughs> I was actually thinking, not that, it feels weird to say that there could be positives coming out of that, this kind mm. of trauma, but <coughs> the main positive is, is, is it's given me an enormous sense of compassion when I'm working with, with clients that have been through trauma as well mm. and understanding that this is not something you can just um, skip over when you're talking to a, a, a client. Mm. You need to give them permission to to um, unpack it if they need to because often because I work in emergency mental health so people who are in crisis um, they're really vulnerable it doesn't take much for them to to, to, to open up and, and talk about this and I think that uh, the sense of compassion that I've developed as a result I think is 
without a doubt improved my practice in, in caring for people. But I think another positive is, is it gives me, um, I, I think, a voice of authority, I suppose, when you're talking about trauma because you're not, again, not just talking about it from an academic perspective or a clinical perspective. You're actually saying, not that when I do public presentations, I don't talk about it. Typically when I'm presenting to, say, other health professionals, I wouldn't talk about my personal story. But um, I, I think, you know, you know that you speak with authority because you understand uh, on a deeply personal level what you're talking about as well rather than just reading it out of a textbook or looking at what yeah, the research yeah. tells us so yeah that's that's really really interesting and yeah i don't want to trivialize the whole thing and say yeah it's bad but you know hey there's some good things that can happen too but it's just it's obvious to me that you know whatever experience you have in life there's, there's, I don't think there's any experience in life that is all bad just like there's no experience that is all good yeah. like there are it's important, I think, to acknowledge the, the nuances of life. and mm. um, There is actually yeah. a thing too, and, and this backs up what you're saying, suggesting there could be something positive. There, there yeah. is actually a concept known as post-traumatic growth, that you, oh, yeah. you experience trauma, you fall into a bit of a heap, you start your long journey to recovery. You, most people hopefully get kind of back to baseline where they were before the trauma struck, but then there are um, people who, when you put the time and the effort into your recovery, actually... Um, return to a higher level of functioning and right. that's known as post-traumatic growth and so often people that have been through significant trauma who experience post-traumatic growth if you ask them if they could build a time machine and go back here and make the trauma go away most of them will say no they'll say yeah it was horrible but I'm the person I am today because of that experience too yeah and I would count myself amongst those I haven't yeah. heard of post-traumatic growth until now but but yeah I went through a few years of a, of a pretty dark time with mm. my mental health and depression anxiety and obviously getting morbidly obese and um, yeah life was in really bad shape for me for a, a while there but uh, same thing I would if I could go back and take that away there's no way I would even dream of mm. doing it because mm. my life now is exponentially better than it was before that experience yeah and and uh, and I'm able to you know I work with people that are um, when I'm working with people with eating disorders and food addiction and things like that, I'm working with people that have seen dietitians and nutritionists and naturopaths and doctors and, you know, these, these people are, there's nothing wrong with any of these people or these professions, but when you haven't experienced an eating disorder, if, you, if you're a dietitian who's been, you know, had no trouble maintaining a healthy weight for your whole life, then how can you relate to someone who mm. is, you know, you can try and people do try. There's nothing wrong with the effort that they put in. But if, you know, if you've never experienced sexual abuse, you can't relate to someone who has. And if you've never experienced food addiction or um, eating disorders, then you just can't relate to someone who has. Mm. So, yeah, I'm grateful for that experience because it allows me to connect with the people I work with in a different way to what others can and mm. and that's not the only reason I'm grateful for it there's just there's a myriad of reasons my life is better for having to having gone through that so yeah um yeah absolutely there's there's positives in my negatives and and it's yeah it's interesting to hear about the positives that have come from yours too mm. Mm. um now just just moving along a bit you you more recently you've you've uh, come into this plant-based way of eating. Yeah. So I'm interested in, in how that you arrived at that. So <clears throat> I've always been on the light 
side in terms of like I was always the littlest kid at school yeah. and I've always sat kind of between 60 and 65 kilos during my adult adult, adult yeah. life and uh to me, that's a good problem to have. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> yeah. but anyway, yeah, keep going. <laughs> Never really had a problem, you know, I basically could eat whatever I wanted. But yeah. uh, when we moved to Melbourne um, six and a half years ago, um, um, marriage broke down and I ended up um, house-sitting, living on my own. Working on the road with police as well. We only worked the, the job I did. We only worked evening shifts. We didn't get yeah. paid a meal break, so you'd eat on the road. And so when yeah. you're on the road every night with the police, you eat a lot of takeaway food yeah. and junk food. And I put on. That's pretty stereotypical of police, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> yeah, they tend to start out pretty fit and healthy. It doesn't take long because yeah. you know you'd be really, really busy. Even when you're back at the station, you're working, you're writing up assessments, and then yeah. somebody will just come around and you know everyone put in ten bucks and they're just going to get ten pizzas and everyone just yeah. eating pizza while you're working. Yeah. And I put on. 21 kilograms in five years um, right. which might not seem like a lot for people but that's that made me um, 25 percent heavier so like that yeah was a, I, I went from a, a 30 inch waist to I, was, I remember I was in Adelaide for work and the zip on my trousers broke uh, and so I had to race out and buy a new pair of trousers for a presentation I was doing and um, I put a 34-inch waist on. That was the only one yeah. that fit me, and that was the first time in my adult life. A rude shock. Yeah, and that's when I started listening to... Um, I, I can't remember how I discovered it, but I stumbled upon Rich Roll's podcast, yep. started listening to that. I spent about a year, and maybe a year, maybe a year, and less, maybe, listening to everything he had to say, had to say and started looking into plant-based um, nutrition, didn't want to change though it sounded really good in theory yeah. Yeah. I could understand it but I was still working with the police and coming home at you know two o'clock in the morning and grabbing maccas on the way home and yeah you don't you couldn't be bothered cooking at two o'clock in the morning when yeah, you, you yeah. Know, just worked a really long stressful shift but then my dad was in hospital having hip surgery last year 10 months ago and uh, I just looked around the, the hospital ward and there were people with um yeah because of working in health I know that there were people there with um type 2 diabetic leg ulcers, for example, um, mm. or having, you know, toes amputated because of type 2 diabetes. And um, then you'd see them out the front and they're smoking and mm. sucking down on a Red Bull and then yeah. they'd bring the food in <laughs> at the hospital to serve Dad and it was atrocious food. So, um, and you go down to the cafeteria and the food was atrocious and something just clicked and I went to the down to the, the, the cafe and I bought my first ever soy latte. Oh, yeah. <laughs> which was just... <laughs> felt like I was becoming a hipster or something. <laughs> and literally, for me, it was overnight. I just stopped eating animal products. Yeah, right. And uh, lost all the weight um, and started exercising again. Um, never really done much exercise, but I started um, running and going to the gym. And at the end of this month, I've got my first half marathon. So. Yeah, I've been following you, your training on social media <laughs> I'm about hoping that. I so. don't die. <laughs> I said to my physio the other day, I said, if by chance I die on the day, I said, can you come to my funeral and make sure everyone knows that I died really happy? <laughs> <laughs> but I've n never felt better. <clears throat> Emotionally, mentally better than I've ever been. Um, I feel uh um, physically more confident than I've ever ever felt. Uh, um, sleep better. Just, I, I cannot sing the praises of it yeah. highly enough. And uh, uh, 
So I'm, I'm kind of a baby in this whole area, yeah. really. But, uh, every, like people notice, like like that family and friends and work colleagues were commenting on what I was eating and commenting yeah. that, that I was losing weight. And someone actually asked me if I had cancer because <laughs> I didn't try, I didn't know yeah. calorie counting or anything. Yeah. As you know, with plant-based, you can just eat. And, yeah. um, I cut out oils and sugar and salt. Um, and uh, the weight literally just every day was just melting away. It was quite, quite incredible. And yeah. again, it doesn't seem like a lot, 21 kilos, but that's a quarter of my body weight yeah. that, I, that I've lost. So it's relative to the size. Yeah, yeah that's, and, that's amazing. Mm. Um, uh, the thing that struck me about that again is that, yeah, I was sort of a little bit similar in that I, I knew a lot about good health and you know, plant-based eating before I decided to do my year of potatoes. Mm. Um, yeah, I'd been listening to Rich Roll and other podcasts and I'd read books and, you know, I, I had a good understanding of what whole food plant-based eating was and why it was good and all that, but uh, I wasn't able to actually, you know, I had tried to do a whole food plant-based diet before and I wasn't able to make it stick. And, um, and yeah, it's sort of that aspect sort of mirror is a, is a mirror image of you a little bit. And, uh, mm. and it, the thing that really interests me is that like we talked about earlier as well, is that, you know, a cigarette smoker knows they shouldn't smoke, but they keep on going. And, a, and, a, and overweight people who want to lose weight know mostly what they, you know, they shouldn't be eating cake. Maybe they're mm. not quite sure about exactly what they should be eating, but they know what they shouldn't be eating. Yeah. And, um, but people just can't actually just step up and, and make a change and make it happen. So mm. what do you think it, it was that was holding you back from doing that other than just the time? You know, there's a psychological aspect to it. Uh, you know, I understand it's, it's hard to cook when you're, when you're getting home at 2 a.m., but you could have if you really I could have, yeah. So, and I, so I could have taken it, yeah. food to work with me and just eat. And, and, but you know, I think partly yeah. I was just lazy. Like I was work, yeah. working long hours. I run yeah. my own business on the side as well. Yeah. Um, studying part-time um, yeah. as well I think but the other thing is after, so the thing uh, is that if it was important enough to you it, you would have figured it out yeah know? so so yeah what I'm really interested in that I've got to dig into this so because okay. I know yeah what it was for me but I'm really interested in how it works for other people because you know this is an important thing it's your mm. health and you know how important it is but you're not allowed, able to make it stick so you know you can say you yeah, you were too lazy or you were, didn't have enough time or whatever. But if it was important enough, you would have made the time and you wouldn't have been so lazy. So what was it that meant that it wasn't important enough to you? Well, I, I think realistically I was, I was depressed as well after my marriage yeah. and lonely because oh, of course, I didn't yeah, really yeah. know many people in Melbourne or anyone yeah. when we came here. I've got family here, but I... Um, and so a lot of it I think, was just comfort eating and yeah. thinking this... Food makes me feel good, yeah. and it's easy. And when, yeah, as you know, when you're depressed, um, you lose motivation as well. So, um, and I was working at that stage seven days a week because if I if I didn't if I had a day off, I'd get I'd feel the loneliness even more. So um, I was just working really, really um, chaotic, long, long hours. Um, so I had all the head knowledge. So I think probably the reality there was probably the depression holding me back. But I think. The real the, the thing that really I guess triggered me to, to actually make the action was being at the hospital and seeing these people and thinking this could be me like I'm I'm 48 turning 49 next month mm. and I'm thinking I'm 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 now in in that zone where I'm at risk of having 
um, a cardiac event. I'm at risk of um, having high blood pressure, at risk of having a stroke if my um, cholesterol or lipids are really high as well. And that that scared me because there were people in hospital my age and younger that were you know unwell. And you know you'd listen to the ward rounds, and not that I should be listening, but sitting next to dad in, in his hospital bed, and you'd hear what was being said about the person and their diagnosis and their recovery. And I think that for me that was the real motivation thinking I don't want to be sick I don't want to end up you know on a whole bunch of pills with a whole bunch of really really nasty side effects so even though I work in mental health and medication is a part of what we do we overuse medication we know that and these medications doesn't matter what we're treating whether it be a mental illness or a physical illness these medications have serious side effects as well yeah, and I didn't want to take medication. I don't <laughs> like medication. I woke up this morning with a, a stinking headache, and it was. I, I actually took some Panadol because, yeah. and I normally wouldn't even do that because I don't like sticking toxic substances, poisons into into your body unless you absolutely have to. Yeah, I feel the same about medication to to the point where you know even in the depths of depression, I was I was um, prescribed with um, depression medication. Um, and yeah, I decided not to take it, um, mm. which was yeah debatable whether it was a good or bad idea. I guess because mm. uh, if I if I did take it, maybe I wouldn't be have experienced the life that I have since then. Mm. But who knows? I'm not going to speculate on whether it was a good or bad mm. idea. But uh, but yeah, uh, the point is that I understand your, your thoughts on medication. I, I like I very very rarely take a Panadol or, mm. a, or a cold and flu tablet or mm. anything like that. And um, and yeah, I like what. You mentioned side effects. I like what T. Colin Campbell has to say about that. He says uh, something like that uh, medications don't, they don't have side effects. Everything's just an effect. And some mm. of them are good effects and some of them are bad effects, but they're all just effects. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. You know, you don't get to pick and choose which ones no. you have. <laughs> no. And, so, and I'm, I'm not <clears throat> anti-medication. Um particularly working in mental health. There are mm. some people, particularly with a more severe depressive disorder, like what we call a major depressive disorder, mm. they're the people that are most likely going to respond well to an antidepressant. Yeah. Um, and after my son died, um, I was so traumatised, I actually ended up suicidal and was um, planning on taking my life. And my GP put me on an antidepressant yeah. and I took it for about 12 months and I was very grateful for it because it lifted me out of a terrible state of despair, even though you could say, well, technically I was, I was grieving and I was grieving, um, but I was also at risk of doing something mm. um, uh, that I might have regretted as well. And yeah. so, but th- that's the only time. You know, if I was mildly or moderately depressed, I'd still look at do- today. I'd look at doing a whole range of other things before mm. I'd even consider actually using any, any yeah, medications. Yeah. yeah, I should clarify. I'm not anti mental health medication mm. in, in any way. It's just something that I did, and um, I don't recommend people to follow my path i think you should follow the advice of your health professionals or at least follow your own heart in figuring out what's right for you but uh yeah i like what um i haven't experienced again so i don't i don't know what it's like when i do osher ginsburg's podcast a lot and he talks about um mental health medication being like a an ankle brace or something like that where you know if you hurt your ankle you got to wear a brace for a while mm. to to allow it to heal, and he he talks about the med- medication being a 
a similar sort of thing. It's just like you're putting a little splint on for a little while just to allow, um, you know, some healing to take place before you maybe try to remove it a bit, the splint a little bit later. Do you I, think I, like, that's a, yeah. I like that analogy, yeah. yeah. My, my problem with medication too is that even if a person does need medication, why are we not talking about all the other things that we can be mm. doing? So when I became... Um, depressed after my marriage, Brian, and what I needed more than anything was connection with other human beings because I'm very, very lonely. And, uh, you know, I would, I can almost guarantee most doctors that you go to wouldn't, wouldn't say, let's, uh, let's, you know, where's your connection? I have never, ever heard anybody in mental health, not once have I heard anybody talk about nutrition Mm. and mental health, um, that the link between the, the food you eat and either good mental health outcomes or bad mental health outcomes. Why aren't we talking about, um, meaning and purpose. Why aren't we talking about things like um, meditation and, and, and yoga and quiet reflection in life? Like this kind of stuff doesn't doesn't get spoken about. We tend our default tends to be, here's a tablet, just take it. That'll make you feel better. There's no magic bullet in mental health. There's not. There's no tablet that is a magic bullet that's actually going to make you completely better. Uh, if we get look at illnesses like, say, schizophrenia and bipolar, that, that's where the medication is, is absolutely crucial for that person. But we still want to look at other stuff like meaning and purpose and connection mm. and all this kind of stuff that we don't talk about <coughs> working in this field. And that troubles me that we're not, we're not doing that, that we're still, we're still predominantly a, a medical model that, you, that everyone just needs, needs a tablet and that's it. Yeah, well, I'm glad you brought that up because my, my next comment was going to be, I think that, um, yeah, I saw a different psychologist when I was um, dealing with my depression and both of them were, I was in, I was living in a tiny town so I didn't have, I couldn't shop around and see all mm. different people. I was like, I was living in a tiny town in Kakadu called Jabiru and there was a psychologist that came once a week and that was it. That was the yeah. only psychologist and then at some point she left and a new psychologist started so I tried again with the new psychologist and um, yeah, that was the only options I had at that point in time but the point I'm getting to is that I went to see them we had a talk about how my life was and you know the symptoms I guess for want of a better word and uh, they basically diagnosed me with depression clinical depression and anxiety and prescribed me with a pill and mm. I think that was a big reason why I decided not to take it because I was I knew that there was there must be more to this than mm. just take a pill and go away yeah. like I knew that what else is going on I didn't know what the answers were but I was like surely there's more to it than just give me some medication and mm. be on your way mm. and uh and yeah so I'm interested yeah let's let's get more into that so obviously we've been talking about nutrition so I'm interested in how first of all how nutrition is going to impact your, your mental health I know that um, there's, you know, eating eating well is going to boost your your uh, your self esteem and things like that. You know, you know, if you're doing something well, that has an impact on your mental health and things like that. Mm. I've got lots of my own ideas. Anyway, I'm, yeah. I'm interested to hear yours on how nutrition can impact your mental health. We're, in a, we're living in a really fortunate time, I think, because there's a tidal wave of, of, of really good quality research rolling in right now, um, linking um, poor, poor nutrition to poor, poor mental health. So there's one, this study was, I think, maybe 2012. They had um, 
uh, over 9,000 participants in the study and they, found, uh, and they did it over, I think from memory, four years and they found that you were 40% more likely to develop depression if you had a diet where you were consistently consuming um, fast food. We've got the, um, the SMILES trial that was conducted here in Good Melbourne. Good name for it. SMILES trial, <laughs> yeah. um, <clears throat> by, uh, out of um, the Food and Mood Centre at Deakin University, and they put people with a major depressive disorder, so not, not minor or moderate, but a major depressive disorder, they put them on a modified Mediterranean diet. So even though they were still consuming animal products, they limited their animal products, and that mostly they were told to consume basically um, fruits and veggies and legumes and nuts and seeds, and 30% of them had a, a, like a really significant reduction in their symptoms of depression. And that's the only thing they did, was actually modify their diet. They didn't modify anything else they didn't get them exercising for, for example so controlling for variables in a study like that is really important so you can say this is the thing that actually uh, altered um, their mental health um, people who are um, low in certain vitamins are more likely um, like b12 for example if you're low in b12 you're more likely to have symptoms of anxiety okay um, and which is one of the reasons now that I'm plant-based, I take it that's the only tablet I take is a B12 supplement because yep. I'm not getting um, B12 through meat. Although we used to get B12 through the soil, because I think post-World War II, 50% of our veggies came from backyard and veggie patches and you'd pull your carrots right, out yeah. and your potatoes and you'd give them a bit of a wash and eat them. And there, actually, there was B12 from the soil on the, the, the veggies that we're actually eating. Mm. And now, so because all of our veggies that come from our, our big producers now are chemically cleaned, um, yeah, they use chlorine getting, and yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, you don't get any B12, for, for example. So that's the only supplement I, I take. But I think what speaks volumes is just people tell us that they feel better when they when they alter their diet. We see the remarkable change in their mood, and, and I th and I think it's not just the food. I think it's the fact that you have a sentence you feel a sense of empowerment here that I'm doing something that's positively impacting my mental health. So I think you know the problem with you know, this we have to do it with with. with scientific research we've, we've got to kind of narrow it down to be really reductive and say this is the this is the thing but even in that smiles trial there's more going on there than just the the the, the nutrition because the people are going to feel really positive about what they're doing and when they're starting to feel better um, they're going to make more effort to make sure that they stick to the diet and and, and eat, the, eat the, the the right food so um I, th I think getting people understand the physical impact of not eating right. I think we all understand, but I think for too long we haven't stopped to think about how it impacts your, your, your brain. And I think people probably wouldn't articulate this, but on some level we think our brains just function on glucose and oxygen, <laughs> but the, the, uh, they actually don't. They need a range of um, vitamins and minerals and micronutrients and phytonutrients as well. Um, that it's really important for brain function. And so one way I get people to think about this when I'm talking about nutrition and mental health is that you can take one vitamin out of your diet and you'll develop dementia eventually. It might take 40 years, but you'll develop dementia without this vitamin and it's thiamine. Yeah, and right. the only person that will develop this type of dementia is a person who's a really heavy alcohol consumer because alcohol inhibits the absorption of thiamine in your gut. So long-term thiamine depletion, you develop a type of dementia called Corsicos. And so I say to people, you know, if we can take one vitamin out of your diet and you can develop dementia, mm. that tells you how important nutrition is for, for brain function. And I think most of us are more, more concerned about the fuel that we put in our cars than the fuel that we're <laughs> actually putting in our 
our bodies. Yeah, that's a really interesting way to do it. I haven't heard that about thiamine and mm. alcohol. That's mm. a yeah, and it's a really interesting way to put it. And I, I often think about how you know universally everyone acknowledges that that um, the way you eat is going to affect the way your liver functions, the way it functions. Uh, it's going to affect the you know the how your skin looks and how your digestive system works and you know there's it's endless what we talk about how food affects different functioning parts of your body yeah but almost no one talks about you know your brain's just another organ like your Mm. liver is and your heart is it's just another organ and we don't really talk about how the way you eat affects the way your brain functions Mm. and obviously the way the brain functions is going to affect your mental health so um, yeah. yeah, it's strange that we haven't really started making that connection. Well, I'm sure lots of people have, but on the mainstream level, we haven't really started making that connection until pretty recently. So, mm. um, yeah, it all comes to me about, like you were talking about, when you start doing something well, it makes you feel good and, um, and yeah, how, uh, how being successful at it, at um, sticking with a, a healthy diet plan is just going to make you feel like you're accomplishing something and that's going to change your mood for sure. I'm interested as well in um, in the the physiology behind it. Is there, you know, that's an obvious side of it and um, is there like a, a physiological mechanism behind um, how food can affect your mental health as well? Is that something you've looked into? Or? That's where it's it's <coughs> difficult to a couple of, couple of bikies <laughs> riding past. It's a, a sunny, um, I, I guess the computer probably caught that up, but it's a sunny, beautiful Melbourne day and people are out um, testing their motorbikes. I'm on, I'm on a very busy road here yeah. too. It's been surprisingly quiet. Um, that's where it's difficult to actually measure the, the, the individual impact that certain um, vitamins and minerals are having. So the, yeah. the one with thiamine, we, we worked that out a long time ago because we, yeah. you are, we, were, we were able to make the link that the only person that developed this type of dementia was a big alcohol consumer. Where it is measurable is when we actually start to look at gut health and the impact on, on what's called the microbiome. So this, oh, I mean, this is a whole other tidal wave, of re, tidal wave of research coming in, and this is still relatively young in terms of the research in this field, but looking at how nutrition affects um, your, your gut health and um, essentially having the wrong diet, which is highly processed sugar, salt, fats and low in things like fiber for example um, your microbiome gets all out of whack and the research is very clearly pointing towards the fact that if your microbiome is out of whack if you've got poor gut health that there's a link here between poor mental health as well and it's very easy to correct a case of getting fruits and veggies and particularly fiber so people do things like they take um, um, a probiotic for example um, so uh, and think that that's good that'll help their gut health but they mm. continue to eat low fiber foods and, and poor quality nutritional foods and yeah. uh, the probiotics um, they die the bacteria actually die off because they, the, the, the probiotics live on fiber and so if you're not that's actually really getting yeah. a lot of fiber and so a few years ago they discovered that a mother's breast milk has 
um, a form of fibre in it, um, oligosaccharides, and they yeah. wondered why that was. And it was that because babies won't won't consume any for anywhere from three months to twelve months uh, in in the first three to twelve months in their mm. life, they actually still need the fibre to feed their gut bacteria. Yeah, that's really interesting. As well. And actually, I have this where I have to confess I, I had a big whopping failure this week with. Um, plant-based nutrition um, because it has been a bit of a tough week. I was walking through the supermarket and the one thing I found hard to give up was milk. So I used to get really bad um, um, indigestion, like heartburn. Yeah. And I would treat that, but rather than taking a tablet, I'd treat, treat it by drinking um, milk oh, yeah. to actually settle the heartburn. Um, and I was walking through uh, the supermarket feeling a bit sorry for myself and I thought, oh, I'm just going to buy, you know, like a 600 mil thing of milk. Yeah. And I came home and I drank it. And uh, it was really nice. I know it's disgusting when you think about yeah. it. We're eating this, you know, breast <laughs> milk from a cow. Yeah. But interesting. The next day, my gut was so crook. Mm. I was just unbelievable because I haven't had any dairy mm. for ten months, and I was just so crook. And that for me was just another example of how what we eat impacts us physically very, very, very quickly. So that's <laughs> my big failure for this week. That's if anyone's yeah. thinking that I'm getting it right and being perfect. No, no. <laughs> that's that's interesting because um, I sort of had a similar experience though mine was by accident where I was before I was whole food plant based and before my potato year, I was vegan for a long time before that, right. but eating junk food vegan stuff. Yeah. And uh, and one particular night I ordered a vegan pizza with vegan cheese on it, but I didn't realize that they got the order wrong and put normal cheese on it. Okay. And so I ate this vegan pizza and I was not, I was far from being a healthy guy at that point in time, but I was vegan. And, um, and then, yeah, this, this pizza just really messed with my guts mm. and, um, and yeah, I felt really sick and I spent a long time on the toilet and, you know, <laughs> I wasn't going to say I, that, but I did too. But, uh, and I was like, what is going on here? This is like, I don't understand because I hadn't felt that way in such a long time. And then, yeah, it turned out that the, uh, the order was wrong and because no, I, I didn't actually know. place the order, someone else did and they forgot to ask for <laughs> vegan cheese and, mm-hmm. and, um, and I wasn't somebody who, um, who like, could easily tell the difference between the tastes of vegan cheese and normal cheese, so I just yeah. ate it. And yeah, it's it's interesting that you've had a similar experience. So <laughs> yeah. So let's say we go back a few years and uh, and and you're somehow ended up in Jabiru where I was living, and you <laughs> you. Well, I did live in the yeah. outback for five yeah. years, by the way, not so, not Northern Territory. Yeah. So so where did you live, Burke? Okay, yeah, cool. Nice yeah. nice place. I've been there a few times just yeah. in my travels. Um, we can talk about that another time, though. <laughs> but, uh, but, yeah, so someone like me turns up and, uh, you know, experiencing depression and, uh, and anxiety and stuff. How, how would you uh, treat that now? Would, you, would there be medication involved? Would there be lifestyle changes? Like how, how would it be? The way I would treat it now would be begin by unpacking what's happening in life what's actually 
cause the person to become depressed. And where our doctors are kind of hamstrung when you think about it. You go to your, you know, your local super clinic where they're going to bulk bill you and your doctor's allocated eight minutes per patient. Mm. Eight minutes is not enough time to unpack a person's story when they're presented and they're, they're, they're depressed. So we, we back them into a corner where they have to keep up and if they don't keep up, they get wrapped over the, the knuckles because many of these big surgeries now are run by entrepreneurs, not by doctors, and mm. they, it's all about money and the bottom line. So we, we set our doctors up for failure too, but <clears throat> I, I'd, be un, I'd, I'd want to hear your story first and find out about your story. I'd want to know what's happening in life now too in terms of um, you know, connection and meaning and purpose or this stuff. If we, our treatment guidelines in Australia now for depression actually tell us that our first line of treatment is psychotherapy, talking basically. It's a fancy mm-hmm. way of saying get the person talking about their experience and what led them to become depressed. And if I understand more of your story that's going to direct how we're going to um uh treat you so um you've heard of johan hari yeah i my wife's read a couple of his books yeah and, and i haven't yet but uh yeah He's on my bucket list. I want to meet him one day and just yeah. call up to him and touch one of his feet. You know, like he's yeah. an incredible, <laughs> incredible man. But he wrote, wrote a book called Chasing the Scream about addiction and he's written another book called Lost Connections. And this listening to an interview with um, uh, Johan Hari by Rich Roll and he was talking about a GP who was re- who real- in, the, in the UK who realised that using medication to treat depression wasn't working for most of his patients. And so there was this horrible kind of alleyway behind him. He said it was that, it gives you an idea of what it's like. He said it was called dog shit alley, like it was just <laughs> a really awful place. And he started getting all of these people with depression and anxiety. Instead of just coming and seeing him and, and, and getting medication, he started. He got them all together on a regular basis to clean up this alleyway and start turning it into like a community garden. And he saw much like phenomenal results in terms of improving their mental health by actually creating a sense of belonging and community because most of them were lonely, isolated people. And, and that's the other thing we don't address in mental health. Um, that we ought to be addressing. I would say anecdotally off the top of my head, in all the years I've been working in mental health, Probably 95% of people that I see are desperately lonely, isolated people. And again, we don't talk about how we can Mm. create a sense of connection for them. So then we might look at things like medication down the track, but we want to look at get your talking, look at lifestyle stuff. So things like getting the person to move their body, so a bit of exercise, so we move our bodies. Our brains release endorphins. Endorphins are literally your body version of heroin and make you feel good. Mm. Um, if you're a runner, you get actually experience a thing called the runner's high, where you're in pain and you, your brain recognises that and rewards you with it, with an extra shot of endorphins. And I've been timing myself. I get about between 40 and 45 minutes into a run, I get the runner's high, and you literally feel this rush, mm. this surge, and all your pain goes away. Yeah. And you think, I could go 50Ks. <laughs> uh, I could probably die if I tried yeah. that. And you, you feel so good. So talking to them about things like um, exercise and nutrition too. So finding out, again, I would say anecdotally 95% of people that I assess are eating really poor quality diets. Snacking on things like, you know, um, um, chicken-flavoured, biscuits um, for lunch and they're having you know a coffee for morning tea and a red bull for afternoon tea and then kfc or maccas on the way home from work you know um, not eating so we'd look at that and and then then we would look at possibly using some, some medication although i should say rather than then we sh- we would look this is what we should be doing yeah, yeah. it's not happening in practice unfortunately yeah. for a lot of people but 
there's all that other stuff that we'd want to unpack first before we'd even start looking yeah that's really the whole everything you said really relates to my personal story as well Mm. from the doctor's appointment eight minutes that was like i said earlier i just had a short conversation with a psychologist and then um they only had one day in town and i had lots of people to see so Mm. a short conversation then i was prescribed something and then i was out the door um talking about loneliness yeah definitely relates to me as well and Mm. i think that was partly to do with um being in in a new town that i'd moved to and i didn't know anybody and having a new boy that was taking up all my time and not getting enough sleep I didn't uh, make the effort to try to get to know anyone in town because I just didn't have the energy available Mm. to Mm. you know just go out and talk to people it was like every spare moment I had I just wanted to sit on the couch and like when you're living on three to four hours sleep a night you know Mm. sleep's another thing so and then um and yeah the way i described how depressed people typically eat it was just mirrors again my experience the vegan version of that though i was vegan mm-hmm. at the time but yeah vegan junk food and um yeah so it's really interesting that that all just yeah, ties in pretty perfectly with with uh, my experience of depression as well and uh, mm-hmm. and as I'm, I'm sure all of those factors had a big impact and um yeah, it's hard to say whether eating potatoes or um, meeting more people or you know improving my sleep or all of that what, what had a bigger impact. But um, and exercising as well, yeah, you know there's mm. runners highs and all of that. It all had a had a big impact. So, um, is there a, a particular area that you think is most important to focus on out of that? Like if you had to start, if you had to choose one, would you would you start with a particular area, or is it just just it's all intertwined and yeah i think the smiles trial from memory um they had uh another group that didn't change their diet but they got them more socially active but and they found that the diet had a bigger impact on mood than connecting people socially really but i think the if my memory serves me correctly i haven't read it for a little while but i I think the, the the trying to narrow into one thing we do it scientifically we have to but I think it's it's a combination of things that creates that perfect storm. And so I've, I've actually, people often ask me that very question, what mm. would you suggest? And so I can't actually suggest one thing, but the mm. two things I do suggest to people is connection and nutrition. If you, mm. There are two things that you can do that we, we know will very quickly positively impact your mental health. It's get some healthy food in. Uh, and start connecting and not living a, a lonely, isolated life. And it doesn't matter how you do that. It can be through a support group. It can be through um, you know, meeting people who like to play board games. It can be taking a dog to a dog park rather than just walking into meeting people. I think they're, they're the two things I'd actually suggest. I wish I could say yeah. one, but <laughs> I would say those two probably. No, I'm glad you didn't say one, actually, because... Um, yeah, I haven't done as much research into mental health as I have into nutrition, um, but it, I often get annoyed about the reductionist um, approach to uh, nutrition research where we, people just want to focus on one individual nutrient or, you know, people want to know the impact of protein or fiber or an individual vitamin or um, all these sorts of things. And, and reality is that no one just eats protein or mm. fiber yeah. or vitamin C, you eat a package that contains some protein and some fiber or maybe not and some vitamin C in it. And yeah, we don't, you know, people write to me all the time and say, oh, I, I'm worried about carbs. Um, and I write back and say, 
don't worry about it because you're not eating carbs. You're eating potatoes, which, <laughs> <laughs> which yeah. they're, they're not carbs. They contain carbs, but they contain lots of other things yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, and yeah, I really think with nutrition, we need to move away from looking at individual nutrients and reducing the whole science down to this, you know, looking at the minutiae and try to look at the, the big picture instead. Mm. And that's what, that's what I'm happy about, yeah your answer to the, this mental health issue that yeah we shouldn't be reducing it to one thing but I've sort of felt like I had to ask that question mm. because people are going to ask, say why didn't you ask that question <laughs> <laughs> I, so, I think, think yeah. too to, and this is where the you know the um, um, the vitamin companies get on board here so we discover that maybe resveratrol from re- red grapes are good for you or or lycopene from tomatoes is good for you so we'll create a supplement that you can take mm. well, why not just eat more red grapes or eat more tomatoes why do we yeah, have to yeah. reduce it to and maybe the lycopene only works when you eat it in, when you actually eat tomatoes, maybe that's when uh, the combination of maybe other substances within the tomato actually help the lycopene to work, or the resveratrol, for example. Why do we have to kind of mm. narrow it down to, we'll just take this, out, pull this out and have yeah. that as, as a supplement? Uh, yeah, I agree 100%. We should be just saying red grapes are good for you. Yeah. Not, not <laughs> you know, mm. or like iron is good for you. That doesn't mean go and get an iron supplement. That means just eat food that has iron in it, yeah. which is pretty much most plants but Mm. yeah I I like that so um, I've had a mental blank I had a good question for you but uh, going um, going back to to the uh, to the original change to the to the plant-based diet um, do you do you think had a big impact on your own mental health or was it was it you know, what aspect of it do you think had the biggest impact on your personal mental health uh, rather than not, not just the plant-based diet, but the whole lifestyle change? What did you personally focus on, you know, to help you deal with your own depression? What was, so what was your approach? I didn't actually start exercising straight away <clears throat> which yeah. because I changed my diet and then I ended up in hospital with a partially collapsed lung and pneumonia. Oh, right. <laughs> so I could not, I was so sick I couldn't actually exercise. And I spent three weeks basically at home on the, on the couch watching David Attenborough documentaries on Netflix. <laughs> Uh, and started feeling better. I reckon within 48 hours, I could, and I was sick at the time. And I'm, I'm, I'm a bit of a, you've had, you know, man flu. I'm a bit of a, bit of a wuss when it comes to getting sick. And I was feeling sorry for myself. But I could, I could, I, I felt a change in my mood probably within 48 hours just from changing uh, my really? diet. And it, and it wasn't until maybe four or five weeks down the track that I actually started exercising. So. Mm-hmm. Um, Robin Chutkin is a gastroenterologist from the States and she, in her research, I, again, I heard her interviewed on the Rich Roll podcast, she said um, you can see a significant change in the microbiome in, in under 48 hours in a person that changes their diet. And the fact linking microbiome to good mental health now means my experience is actually backed up by what she's saying in the research that's been done around changes, that the rapid changes we see in a person's uh uh, uh, gut. So, and I think the fact that my mental health improved quite quickly then gave me the motivation to start exercising. Once I was better again, I could get up and start uh, moving. And then that just was just kind of piling on in terms of another positive thing. Yeah, my experience was pretty similar. Mm-hmm. The, the 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 way I ate had a big impact on my physical and mental health. And then mm-hmm. my motivation to exercise came later. And then that, yeah, again, it was like a snowball effect. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, anyway, I've remembered the question that I had a mental blank on. So we, we talked about uh, the, the benefit of community and just talking to people and just 
being around friends that you can have a good time with and that sort of thing. And we've also talked about, um, about you know, we want men especially, everyone, but focusing on men in this conversation to, to be open about their feelings and mm-hmm. open about the state of their mental health. Um, do you think that those two things are equally important or, or is... Um, you know, just having that community and the social interaction with people, is it, is it just that or is it, um, is it is talking to openly about your mental health state, like how does that actually affect your mental health? Is it, are they sort of, you can't separate the two or is there an aspect, you know, for a, an argument to say, that one's more important than the other or mm. you can't separate them? Or Most people don't need to talk about their mental health in, you know, it's kind of a, a daily part of their conversation. Once they start, say, talking to a psychologist or a counsellor about about what's happening for them, they'll start to actually feel better. They might talk about it to friends and family in in an effort to kind of um, be be um, transparent and and let people know what's going on, and maybe give permission for other people to actually do it. But generally, when we're connecting with other other people, once once you start seeing improvements in your mental health, you're probably not really going to talk about your mental health mm. a whole lot. And I think your friends and family might be, get a bit tired of you if you do talk yeah. about it. kind of that become can kind of become your identity that I'm uh, every time I'm talking to someone I'm talking about the fact that I'm being treated for depression. I, I think the more important, I mean, that is crucially important that you're talking to to somebody who. Uh, if it's more severe and there's maybe, say, a history of, of trauma or something, you definitely want a professional. But just connecting in a transparent way with a, with a close friend or a family member can be just as beneficial for a person. Um, but I think overall, I think the most important thing is that you have a sense of belonging um, and, and connection, which is what was uncovered in um, the research by Dan Butner with um, the Blue Zones. Mm. Um, you had the... Had the yeah, yeah, blue? yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, looking at the, the cultures, places around the world where people are living long and living well, um, this sense of deep connection with your community um, was really important. So I think the type of connection is important as well. So not just talking about the footy and the weather, but actually talking about meaningful stuff as well when, when you can to make those relationships meaningful uh, relationships. And relationships improve when we actually start to honestly with and, and talking about you know maybe the toughest stuff in life um, and we can learn from each other uh, through that so I think the connection is probably if we had to kind of pick which one was more important or would have the bigger impact long term I think it would be the, the connection with others yeah but my experience again measures um, mirrors that with, with uh, you know I often get questions about you know I want to do the potato spoke bit challenge or I just want to change my diet but I'm worried about what my friends and family would say and um, and you know my experience with that is that uh, when yeah I was worried about my friends and family joking about you know making fun of me for eating only potatoes those sorts mm-hmm. of things but I took the I just just decided that you know through my whole life I've I've kept my mental health to myself and it hasn't served me I'm in this position where I'm lower than I've ever been and I have to start doing things differently. Mm. And I didn't, you know, I didn't research whether it was a good idea. I just felt like I have to do things differently. So I decided that um, when I went to a friend's place and they and they were cooking dinner for us, and I turned up with my potatoes, and that was the first time they heard that I was eating only potatoes. Right. And um, and then yeah, when they 
started asking me why and I was expecting jokes and stuff and I just decided to be totally open and honest about it. I've been, you know, experiencing a bad time and food's a big issue, a big part of it. So, and just really just laid it all out on the table for them. And, um, and yeah, it did two things. Number one, the jokes didn't come because, you know, when people who love you want to support you mm. and if, if you're, um, you know, if I just turned up and just said, you know, it's just us, uh, just a, a whim, I'm just eating only potatoes, then yeah, they would have made fun and they should have. You know? <laughs> That's what friends do. They, yeah, yeah. yeah. But friends are supposed to make fun of each in my view anyway. Friends should make fun of each other, you know, on a, on a lighthearted way. You shouldn't mm. pick on people, but you should make jokes about each other and have a, have a laugh and all that sort of thing. But, um, but yeah, as soon as they knew the impact that food had had on my life and the and the experience that I had with depression, they just they just wanted to help me. So then mm. it was like I experienced it over and over again. So it was two things. I I instantly felt more connected to the people that I was talking to, and and they just wanted to support me and help me through the problems that I, that I was mm. having. So That's great. yeah, this um, idea of opening up and talking about things and it, and like you said, it wasn't I didn't become someone that was that was all I wanted to talk about, but it was like. Yeah one deep and um, open conversation was it. After that, we didn't really talk about it much with any of my friends or family, but they knew what I was going through and they knew that it was important, so they left me alone. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so I, uh, I definitely think that it's important for people to at least just have a conversation with the, the people that are around them. Um, right, we better, we better close things down, but I've got, <clears throat> sorry, I've got one more question for you. Uh, I don't know. Is there a mental health minister? Uh, I don't think there is, like a minister for mental health in no, the government. Health minister. I don't yeah. think there's anyone dedicated. Not not that I'm aware of dedicated just to mental health. Yeah, I, I don't think so. Either. So I was going to say this about uh, my question is: uh, if you suddenly uh, wake up tomorrow and find yourself the uh, the minister for health in the government, uh, what would your Obviously, a part of that is mental health. So, what would you like to see change from a, a systemic point of view? You know, from a government level, um, what would you like? To, what changes would you like to see in the whole mental health system in Australia? Like, I would love to see lots and lots of money um, made available to set up really holistic, thorough treatment centres, even um, for, for people, and at no cost. Um, because at the moment, by you know, let's say if you, if if you need to access a psychology counsellor, say it's like for trauma you want to talk about, you've got to find somebody that specialises, and they're going to charge a lot of money. There'll be a Medicare rebate for a certain amount of sessions, but you've got to be able to financially afford that, and most people uh, can't. But I think setting up um, something uh, expensive and holistic like um, Dean Ornish has fought for so long to do in the States with, with his program um, would actually save us money in, in, in the long term because um, people wouldn't be turning up to the emergency department where I worked all day yesterday and I had seven people turn up in crisis and had to uh, assess them. That costs a lot of money when you're taking up emergency beds to assess people. We wouldn't have people, uh, well, we'd have hopefully fewer people taking their lives. Um, we'd have people living more meaningful lives and wanting to contribute more to their own communities if we had much better treatment available at either no cost or, or low cost um, 
uh, to people that encompasses all the stuff we've been talking about, like community and connection and meaning and purpose, and looking at things like the impact of meditation and yoga, yoga, um, psychotherapy, the old, uh, um, nutrition. You know, running um, classes to teach people how to actually become plant-based, for example. Um, that I would love to see something like that. Mm. And uh, yeah, you mentioned that it would be expensive, and it would be. But I think the, um, I think the cost to the government and to the taxpayer would come back many times over if we could set up a system like that. It would, you know, the the savings that would end up being made through mm. the healthcare system, like you said, would just be immense. So, uh, yeah. Good luck, though, finding a politician that, that wants to... Uh, I don't have much that. faith at the moment. Yeah, yeah, if only. Um, yeah, this, is, this has been an amazing conversation. Uh, I'm really, like I said earlier, I'm glad that we waited to, yeah. to make it happen. Not that it was intentional, but it worked out well. And, uh, and yeah, thank you for being so open and uh, transparent and vulnerable with me and with my listeners. And, uh, yeah, I think this has been... Uh, a really a powerful thing that's going to help lots of people and I'm grateful for you sharing it with us and I'm grateful for the work that you do and uh, yeah just just keep being you <laughs> my pleasure to talk to you all right thank you and uh, yeah let's do it again we could we could talk all day <laughs> thank you and spot up have it Jeff Ahern I forgot to ask him to tell you guys how to get in contact with him so if you want to get in contact with Jeff Jeffrey Ahern go to Jeff G-E-O-F-F at JeffreyAhern.com that's G-E-O-F-F at G-E-O-F-F R-E-Y-A-H-E-R-N.com or his website G-E-O-F-F R-E-Y-A-H-E-R-N.com Facebook Facebook.com slash Jeffrey Ahern, the same way I just spelled it. Instagram, Jeffrey Ahern, same spelling. And Twitter, Jeffrey underscore Ahern. Uh, get in contact with him. He's a great guy, uh, as you no doubt know by listening to that podcast. Uh, get in contact with him and, uh, and I'm sure that he can be helpful uh, if you need it. I hope that that podcast maybe changed the way you think about approaching mental health. Uh, I hope it inspired you to start being more open and honest with the people you love about the way that you're feeling uh, and about dealing with your feelings and emotions. Uh, I hope that it at least maybe made you think about what you could do differently in your own life to improve your own and the people around you's mental health. Uh, and And even less than that, I hope you just enjoyed the conversation. I hope I did it justice, really. That's my my main worry about this is that, uh, yeah, uh, maybe I maybe I didn't ask the right questions or maybe I wasn't uh, just, obviously, I, there's no way I could have been prepared for that and it was a, a heavy topic, but I, I, hope I, I hope I did it justice. Uh, if you want to contact me, uh, if you want to, if you're interested in some coaching from me uh, regarding food addiction and, uh, and, our relationship with food then please get in contact with me you can do that through my website spudfit.com or just email me andrew at spudfit.com and we can set up a a free chat to see if we think we're the right fit to work together 
Um, again, contact Jeff through the channels I mentioned earlier and, uh, and take care of yourself. Please, uh, if you need to, then contact Lifeline or contact uh, your GP or your psychologist or someone who loves you and, uh, and let's start talking more openly and honestly about our mental health and about the struggles we face on a daily basis. Uh, nothing gets better when you keep it hidden. So let's not keep things hidden. All right. Thanks for listening and sput up. <laughs>